We're thankful for your presence this evening and hope and pray that you will be benefited by our time together as we continue in this gospel meeting. And uh, we're going to continue to carry a theme that we've had the last couple of nights. And Thursday night when I started my part of this meeting, we, we talked about the importance of establishing objective truth. And it's imperative for us if we're going to have a relationship with a faithful God, with a holy and righteous being, that we submit to his truth. And we're not concerned with our arbitrary feelings or opinions about that truth, but we sincerely only want to find what it is that he desires and submit to that authority. Last night, we talked about how when we observe that authority and, and we're submitting to it, we oftentimes reveal our brokenness. And we see the reproof of the word of God that is there to convict our hearts and show us that without him, our righteousnesses are all as filthy rags in his sight. Tonight we're going to continue with this thought and, and look at another aspect of that is we acknowledge that brokenness and knowing Christ is the only one to heal and to restore. And we're going to look at our response to the wonderful mercy and grace of that Savior. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 9 says, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I want to take that one verse that we opened with last night, I want to put it into context of what it is Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Now, if you remember, the first letter that he writes to Corinth is full, really, of a lot of correction, a lot of reproof, and, and a lot of conviction that ultimately we see play out in the way that they respond to that when Paul writes 2 Corinthians. And he talks about the clearing of themselves and all the things that he was writing to them in 1 Corinthians to correct them of. And that congregation had a number of issues that we would really struggle if those things were going on in our congregations today. But here's the reality. Those things do happen. And when those things happen, we have to look at something that's going to be able to guide our decision-making so that we can be individuals who pursue holiness. And when you think about what he's writing here in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to start there in verse 4. Paul writes, he says, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him in all utterance and all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly awaiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that what we're striving to do? You know, the word of God in Paul's writing here, he's telling them, I'm telling you this correction that I'm about to preach to you and the message of Christ and the gospel was given to you so that you could be blameless so that you could be preserved by the power of that word and be prepared for the day of judgment that's coming. And oftentimes, we don't think about the judgment of God. We just go about living our life and making decisions and making choices, giving no thought that at some point, Christ is going to return and we're all going to stand before his judgment seat. You know what I know about his judgment? It's going to be right. It's going to be just, and it's going to be perfect. And if we as his children are living in this world looking for that day, then we ought to strive to understand just how faithful our God has been to us. And tonight I want us to look and examine the way that we respond to God's faithfulness because we're not faithful because we're wonderful people. We're not faithful because we're wonderful beings. I want to tell you, we're faithful because God has demonstrated his faithfulness to us. How do we even know what love is except for the love of God? 
And the Bible is very clear that as we look at the attributes or the character and the nature of God, what we begin to see is the desire that he has for his creation. And he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son. And when we think about Jesus, Jesus said he was the way, the truth, and the life. He said he was the bread of life. He was that water that would quench that thirst for righteousness. And he was the fulfillment of all those things. And he says, I want you to understand that reality, and I want you to pursue that. Now, can we ever perfect that in the flesh? No. I'll tell you, that's discouraging, isn't it? To understand a call that God is calling us to that is such a perfect example of everything that God is and us knowing full well we can do the best that we can and we can't get there. You know what that causes a lot of us to do sometimes? It causes us to quit and give up. But tonight I hope by the end of the study you understand that perfection is not the goal but it's the pursuit of the holiness of God that God is desiring to see in our lives as a response to his faithfulness. I want to back up to Romans chapter 1. We, we talked about a passage out of Romans 1 on, on Thursday night as we kind of set the stage of talking about objective truth and we talked about how that truth is being suppressed in our culture. I want you to notice Paul's declaration. And really here in Romans 1, 14 through about verse 17, what we're going to see is really Paul's thesis statement. <laughs> we're really going to see Paul telling them, this is why I'm writing this to you. And he says in verse 14, I'm a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So as much as is in me, with everything that I have, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you who were in Rome also. Then verse 16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it, the gospel, is the power of God to salvation. For everyone who believes... For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So here Paul declares, this is the purpose of what I'm doing. And he says, I can't help but do this work and preach and proclaim this message to you. And he says, I'm a debtor. I, I have to proclaim this. To who? And he says, to Greeks and to barbarians. And really what he's saying is, I'm going to preach this message to anyone who will hear and who will listen. And he said, here's why, because that message can save. And what do we do here in the year 2023? Do we preach the same gospel? Do we preach the same message? And you know why we do it? Because it's the power of God to save. And when we talk about salvation, what we're talking about is a holy, righteous, perfect God being able to have a close relationship with sinful, flawed, frail humanity. And apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ, that can't happen. But in it, we can find forgiveness, we can find peace with God, and we can find a faith that can allow us to live. And I think we forget that. Because we look at God sometimes as an evil taskmaster who just wants us to just be obedient children. And he does. But I want you to think about your children. I've got four children. Three of them are pretty great. <laughs> Thank you. You got the joke. They're all great. 
And I want my children to obey me. I, I want them to hear my voice and hear the wisdom that my wife has and that she tries to impart. I want them to listen. And I want them to, to take heed of the warnings and the things that we try to teach them in our home. So to try to save them from some of the heartache and pain that we have suffered from because of our sins. And we're very open with them about that. And I want them to have that confidence that, guess what, they can trust us. And when I walk in the room and they hear my voice, I don't want them cowering in the corner, scared of me. But I want them to hear the voice of a loving father who wants to see them fulfill the will of God in their life. Our heavenly father, just think of that, that phrase, heavenly father. Our father's tender. Our father wants to know what's on our heart. And he knows before we even say or ask, doesn't he? Is that's how much he cares. The very hairs of our head are numbered. And as they fall out, he keeps track. And he knows. Why? Because he cares for us. And he wants to have that type of relationship with us. Even though when we look at ourselves, we see sin and we see brokenness, he sees potential. Because if he sees us as we obey the gospel, he no longer sees us, but he sees the perfect sacrifice of his son cleansing and changing us. And I want to plead with you to not see that in one another. Because that's the father that we serve. As we continue there in Romans 1 in verse 18, we, we talked about this the other night, uh, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against what? All ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And we talked about that morality and the sin that, that God is going to punish in due time. But we talked about that that really is just a symptom of the greater problem, which is what? Which is the rest of that verse in 18, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest to them for God has shown it to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. That's where we stopped on Thursday night. I want you to continue on in verse 20. He says, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, he's describing a people who, just by analyzing and looking at the creation that God had made, would have to, in their heart, admit there is a God. There is a creator of all things. But instead of giving him praise and glory and being thankful to him for his faithfulness and, and all the things that he's done for his creation, what do these people do? They reject that authority and they reject God. And they began to worship what? The creature more than the creator. And though we don't bow down to hand-carved idols of wood and stone, the biggest idol that we struggle with is the one that looks at us in the mirror every day. And we worship that creature more than we do the creator, and our hearts are darkened, and holiness seems like a far-off idea that's impossible for us to attain. Verse 22, he says, Profession to be wise, they became as fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. 
Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for what? For a lie. When did that start? That did not start in 2023. You know when this started, this exchange of a lie for a truth? It started in the garden. Because what did Satan do? Satan told a lie to Eve. And what did Eve do? She exchanged the truth of God and what he had commanded her and her husband Adam, and she exchanged that truth for a lie. And what happened? Sin came into this world. And at some point in our life, guess what we did? We made that exchange. Now, the depth of that depravity may vary, but all of us have to acknowledge we have been in that place where we have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and we have fallen to sin. But through our brokenness, as we discussed last night, God restores, and when he restores, guess what he desires for us? He says, pursue me. He says, come after me. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Jesus taught the importance of laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where break, uh, thieves do not break through and steal. And we have to have that mindset as we pursue a holy and righteous and perfect God. And there are so many things that Satan has at his disposal to distract us from our pursuit of holiness. Do you know what it means to pursue something? Have you ever pursued something? I was trying to think of a really good illustration of pursuing something. Elizabeth and I went and walked this morning. We sat on the back patio at Van and Diana's, and, and I said, I need a really good illustration. She said, well, what about hunting? And I said, well, how my ancestors hunt, hunted, yes. <laughs> but the way I hunt, I really don't pursue much. <laughs> I feed them consistently. I train them to come to a feeder at certain times of the day. And, and I have cameras that take pictures that I don't even have to go out there and check. It will send me automatically to my phone so I know, okay, about 5.30 a.m., that 10-point buck's there every morning. So I know I just got to get out there about 30 minutes before. I'll be ready. I said, it's not going to work. I got to thinking, have I ever pursued something in my life? And I thought of one thing for sure. A lot of things that are ungodly. But one thing that I can share with you that was a good pursuit, and that was my wife. I pursued her. You know what I mean by that? When Elizabeth and I started dating, I lived in Dallas. She lived in Houston. I was in college. I was working full-time, paying my own way through college. And I worked overnight, went to school during the day. I slept while I was driving to school after I got off work every day. But, you know, when I had a weekend off, guess what I did? Sleep, no sleep, I pursued her. And I got in my car, and guess what? I left Dallas, and I drove to Houston. And I would stay there, and I would pursue her, and we would talk, and, and we would make plans, and we'd get to know one another and build a relationship. And I'd stay until Sunday night at midnight so I could drive home and get to my 8 o'clock class. And I was willing to do that. Why? Because I wanted her. <laughs> you see, pursuit means there's something at the end that you want to have. 
And when God desires or instructs us to pursue holiness, we have to understand holiness has to be an objective that I want to attain. And that holiness can only be found in God. I can't find it anywhere else. So what God is really saying is pursue me. Chase after me. Return the faithfulness that I've displayed to you to me so that we can have this type of relationship. Hebrews 12 and verse 14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Does God care what kind of life you live? If he's sitting there instructing us to pursue holiness, that without that you will not see the Lord, then the Lord cares about the life we live. Because when we talk about holiness, what we're really talking about is godliness. How hard is it to be godly today? I'll tell you, it's been hard to be godly from the very beginning. Because there's temptation. We have lust. We have desires. And until we submit those lusts and those desires under the mighty hand of God, then what are we? We're just what they talked about in Romans chapter 1 where we heap that evil upon ourselves because, guess what? We're worshiping the creature more than that creator. You know, we understand the idea of pursuit. It, it's even documented in our Declaration of Independence as a country and our founding fathers. And I want to read this, the preamble and kind of the beginning of that document that is what established this nation. Now, I want you to listen to these words. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The document that founds the nation that we live in states that in this country, every person have the right to pursue what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I preached this one time and I quoted this, and guess what I heard? I heard an Amen. Man, that's got to be in the Bible, right? It just sounds good. Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. Because we're Americans. Understand something about God tonight. God is not concerned about your happiness. He is concerned about your holiness. Now, does he want us to have joy? Absolutely. <laughs> does he want us to look at this life and say it's full of blessings? Absolutely. But that only coincides and is only a priority when our holiness is motivating the happiness that God can give to us. And too often in our culture, we're more concerned with happiness and what makes me feel good than we are about pursuing the holiness and the godliness that God desires for us to have.
That's why we see homes devastated. That's why we see selfishness within relationships. That's why we see rebellion and all manner of sin and pridefulness and egos and all those things because we're only concerned about our happiness. And tonight we need to be reminded of what it is that God desires. You see, we have a certain mindset towards sin as a human being. And that mindset causes us to make excuses for our sin. And sometimes we'll even say, you know, well, this behavior or this practice, yes, it it may violate the will of God, but it makes me happy. And God would want me to be happy. So if I'm happy, then I'm good, right? You know what would make my seven-year-old daughter happy? If she could have ice cream and chocolate cake tomorrow morning for breakfast. Guess what we're not going to have for breakfast tomorrow, darling? Well, unless Diana fixes chocolate cake and ice cream. Well, I don't think she's going to do that. Why? Because even though it might make her happy, that's not what's best for her. And as a parent, I know what's best for her. When we look at God, he's not overly concerned about the happiness that we are enjoying here on this earth because he's preparing us for something greater than this world. So therefore, this argument, well, this behavior makes me happy and God would want me to be happy, if it's sin, it's sin. And the consequences of sin is death every single time. Some people say, well, what's the big deal? It's my life. Do you really think you live in a vacuum? Do you really think your life and your decisions and your choices don't impact other people? (laughs) This isn't hurting anyone. And then this one, well, where does the Bible say I can't? (laughs) And what we do in our minds with sin is we say, okay, well, I know this is wrong, and there's a line here that I'm not going to cross. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to get as close to that line as I can. And as long as I don't cross that imaginary, arbitrary border that I've established for myself, I'm good with God. Here's the problem. We may say that line is here. God has said it's way back there. You and I don't determine where that line is. His word does. And if we're concerned about His holiness and pursuing Him, it's not up to our arbitrary standards of where sin is. We look at His Word, and when His Word says it's wrong and there's some behavior I need to correct, I humbly repent and say, Lord, I need to change some things. Young people, don't play with sin. You can't stand next to the fire and not get burned. And the closer you get to that line in all manner of sin, when you put yourself in situations where you're going to be tempted, understand Understand the consequences of that behavior. And understand you have a holy Father in heaven who's looking at you, watching you, and seeing the way that you're living. And instead of tiptoeing up to that line of sin, he teaches us to flee from sin, doesn't he? Look at Romans 6 and verse 10. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, speaking of Christ Jesus. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. (laughs) Dead to sin. You know, to be dead to something, what that means? There's no desire of that for me anymore. 
We've sung that song all week with our young people, Galatians 2 and 20, and I can't quote it without seeing it. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We know that, right? That's what he's saying. It's no longer my life. I've been crucified. I've, I've laid aside my carnality. I've laid aside my sinful desires, and I'm allowing Christ to live in me, and I've died to sin, but I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what it means. That's hard. You know why? Because we still got to live in the flesh, don't we? No matter how strong and how much we feed our spirit, we're still enrobed in this flesh on this earth, and that flesh has to battle and fight temptation. But tonight, remember the call of God. 1 Peter 1, verse 16 says, Be ye holy, for I am holy. So our holiness is not discerned or defined by moral decisions that we make, but it's in this pursuit of a holy and perfect God. And in that pursuit, we change the nature of this frail human form and allow Christ to dwell in us. Now, there is something in our culture today that is a great threat to this pursuit of holiness. And we could talk about a lot of different sins tonight. But I want to share with you a concern of a modern plague. You know, with the advancements of technology, there have been amazing things that we have been able to accomplish as human beings on this earth. You think about the way businesses run. You think about just the way decisions are made and how fast communication can be sent and received and how much we can accomplish in a very short amount of time just because of the technology that we have at our disposal. But with that comes a very grave danger. And I want to ask you tonight to listen to some of these statistics I'm about to share and ask yourself, is this a problem? 30,000 people view pornography every second. The United States produces 89% of all pornographic web pages. 25% of all search engine requests are about sex, which is about 68 million searches. 200,000 Americans are addicted to pornography, which is 11 plus hours a week that they're spending online viewing pornography. Porn addiction is accompanied most often by many co-occurring disorders such as anxiety, depression, and also substance abuse. Forty percent of porn addicts lose their spouses. Fifty-eight percent suffer considerable financial losses. Thirty-three percent of high-volume users of pornography lose their jobs. Fifty-six percent of divorce cases involve one person having a porn obsession. Pornography use increases the marital infidelity rate by more than 300 percent. The average age of initial pornography exposure is 11 years old. 93% of boys will see pornography before they turn 18 years of age. 57% of teens search out porn at least monthly. 
teen girls are more likely to seek out pornography than young women who are over the age of 25. 87% of college-age men report using pornography on a regular basis. 75% of parents, this is one of my favorite ones, believe their child had never encountered pornography. Can we get out from under the rock and be honest? 53% of those children reported that they had in fact viewed pornography. 71% of teens hide online behavior from their parents. And parents, they're smarter than you when it comes to this technology because they were born with it. They don't understand a time without cell phones. I do. I remember bag phones. They don't know what a bag phone is. 45% of teens who consume pornography did so to learn about sex. Over 20 independent studies find a high correlation between porn use and the decline in mental health of individuals. One in five youth pastors and one in seven senior pastors use pornography on a regular basis. 43% of all church leaders say that they have struggled with pornography in the past. And when I say church leaders, I'm talking in the broad scope of what our country would recognize as Christian churches. 64% of Christian men say that they watch porn at least once a month. 15% of Christian women say that they watch porn at least once a month. Only 7% of church leaders report that their church has a program to address the issues of high-volume pornography use by its members. 90% of teens and 96% of young adults are encouraging, accepting, or neutral when discussing pornography with friends. 55% of adults 25 and older believe pornography is wrong. I should have put on only before the 55. Teens and young adults believe not recycling is worse than viewing pornography. Where are our priorities? 43% of teens believe porn is bad for society compared to 31% of young adults 18 to 24. So what's that show us? The decline in acknowledging the impact that this plague has on our culture and on the lives of our young people. 51% of millennials, 44% of Gen Xers, and 59% of boomers believe porn is bad for society. And you can see how those numbers are just continuing to decline. Now, this sermon tonight is not a sermon about pornography. I'm using pornography to make a point. That when something is so easily accessible, when something is not talked about honestly, when something that can creep into our lives and take hold of us, is right here in our hands, it's very easy for Satan to gain an influence into our heart. 
And when that gets into our heart and into our mind, it changes us from a being who is set out to desire and seek and pursue the holiness of God, and all we care about is pleasing the needs of this flesh. And that carnality will lead us to a life of impurity. It will lead us to a life where we devolve in our minds and we will participate and do things that originally we never thought we would do that would separate us from God. Because that's what sin does. We hear those statistics, we, we see those numbers, we see our young people struggling with this, but it's not just our young people. <laughs> there are grown professionals in the business world who lose their careers because of this. And we want to say it's just a young people problem. No, it's not. But I want to tell you, when we look at the solution, the solution is the same. The solution is a pursuit of holiness that causes me to think about what I allow my eyes to see and what I allow to dominate my heart and my mind. And God all along is telling us His truth. Look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 11. Verse 34, He says, The lamp of the body is the eye. Therefore, when your eye is good, your whole body also is full of light. But when your eye is bad, your body also is full of darkness. And the problem is we view this stuff and, and we toy around with sin and we think it's not hurting anyone else. We think we can hide it. And all the while, our heart is just getting darker and darker. And we're slipping into a deeper state of depravity. And God and His holiness is nowhere in our heart and mind until we wake up and we change the things that we look at. We change the focus of our heart and our life. Look at verse 35. He says, Therefore, take heed that the light which is in you is not darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, the whole body will be full of light, as when the bright shining of a lamp gives you light. Tonight, if you're struggling with any type of sin... It may be pornography. I want to tell you, it may be just pride and your ego. It may be different types of addictive behaviors. It may be a rebellious spirit. It may be an ungodly attitude in your home. It may be a, a lack of patience. It may be a lack of forgiveness. It may be just overall rebellion. Whatever it is. The answer to changing that is to look to Jesus, to look at his word and to look at him as the standard of holiness and say, I don't want to live this way anymore and I'm going to shift my eyes and my focus to him. And when we do that, guess what? Our mind is going to clear and his word is going to begin to dominate our heart. And Proverbs 4 and 23 says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it spring the issues of life. Focus on the Word of God and understand you only have one soul. You only have one mind. Guard it. Protect it. Build hedges around it in your life by studying and meditating and knowing the Word of God. Proverbs 4, continuing on, verse 25 through 26, he says, Let your eyes look straight ahead and your eyelids look right before you. Ponder the path of your feet. Think. 
before you just walk and before you just live, think and ponder and give some consideration of where am I going? What am I doing? What am I allowing into my mind and into my heart? Because that's going to dictate my relationships and it's going to impact the greatest relationship I have with my God. Verse 27, do not turn to the right or to the left. Remove your foot from, remove your foot from evil. And nobody in here tonight would say pornography is not evil. But you know, there are preachers in other churches who are getting up behind pulpits and saying pornography use is okay. And actually that it's healthy. That's Satan. And that is someone who ex has exchanged the truth for a lie. Because all this sexual immorality does is darken our heart and separate us further from the holiness and righteousness of God. Proverbs 7, 1 through 4. I want you to look at these words. It says, My son, keep my words. Treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live, and my law is the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call understanding your nearest kin. You know, these are the words of a loving father to his son, pleading with his son to do what? Pursue what? A holy life. Pursue wisdom. Listen to my words. What I'm telling you is wise and you will be benefited by listening and obeying these words. And this father is pouring his heart out to his children, telling them as, as, as his son, listen, protect my words, hoard them up, stay focused on them. Bind them to your hands, engrave them on your heart. Have a close relationship with them. Fathers, do you desire this for your children? You know, these are the words of that father, the wise one, giving those to his child, his son. And ultimately, why is Solomon giving this instruction? Read the very next verse. That they may keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. See, all of that wisdom, all that instruction, all that pleading to hide my word, to bind them on your hands, to hoard them up in your heart, the whole reason was to protect that son from what? The adulteress. And if you continue reading in Proverbs 7, he goes into great detail des describing that adulteress. And he will satisfy his, she will satisfy his touch with her kiss. She will satisfy his appetite with her offerings of food. She will satisfy his smell with perfume, his eyes with her clothing, her body in a bed covered in colored Egyptian linen. She will satisfy his ears with her promises of pleasure and an ego-stroking flattery. She has calmed all his fears with promises of safety because her husband is far away. And your seductress may not be a woman who's promising you all these things, but the seductress may be the one that's sitting in your pocket tonight. Or the computer that you will go home to and lay on your lap tonight and begin to search and to look at different things. Because guess what? It'll promise you all of that. And at the end, there's destruction. So what do we do? Because I hear all that, and there's part of me 
that says, I want to go back to Lyford, Texas. I want to build concrete walls 30 feet high all the way around my property. And I just want to keep my kids right there. And I don't ever want to let them out of my sight. And I just want to protect them from all of this that's out there. There's a part of me that says, I want to do that. Anybody else feel that way? There's a part of me. But there's another part of me. That says there's nothing new under the sun. This says sin has been a problem for humanity from the beginning. And God has called his people to be examples of holiness to an unholy world. And if God is calling us to that, he must be able to provide provision for us to accomplish that goal and fulfill that mission. So here's what we need to do. First of all, we need to trust God. Young people, place your trust firmly in him. Plant your feet and don't waver. Don't listen to the other voices. Don't get distracted by all the noise that this world surrounds you with. Trust God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. You want God to lead you and direct you to holiness? Then guess what? Trust Him that He can do it. And then implement the things that His Word tells us to as we inst we're instructed to study and understand His ways, to know His Word, and to leave those things into our heart so that we might not sin against Him. Secondly, be different. Let me say this, don't be different just to be different, but be different because your different glorifies God. And if you strive to live a holy life, you're going to be different from this world. You're going to stand out. People are going to notice. Your friends at school are going to notice. And this week's been great, right? You know how many times I've heard you young people say, this week has really strengthened me. This has been a great refreshing time because we're all together focused on spiritual things because in a few weeks we all know where we're going back to, right? Where are you going back to? You're not going to walk the halls with these 80 or however many young people we've had together all week. That'd be awesome, wouldn't it? But some of you are going to go walk the halls and you're going to be the only one. And you're going to be surrounded by people who have no qualms about sinning and giving their life over to this world. Let me encourage you, be different. Get the encouragement and strength that you need to combat those forces. 1 Peter 2 and verse 9 says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may... And here's why we're different. He didn't make us different just so we could stand out and be different. He said, you're different. Why? that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the difference is there so that you bring glory to God. It's not even about you. Isn't that true of pretty much all Christianity and our relationship with God? It's really not about us. It's about him. Thirdly, examine your relationships. If you have friends that are participating in sinful activities and you're aware of this, I'm not going to tell you never talk to them. I think you need to talk to them. I think you need to be a light. 
I think you need to be the one that can precipitate change in their life. But some of those relationships may need to change. Because you spend too much time with people who are doing ungodly things, guess what you're going to end up doing? You're going to participate in those very things. And you may think you're strong enough to withstand it. You may think that you're the one that's going to convert all of them, and I hope and pray that's true, but you better be careful. Because your soul is too important. And there's no friend worth losing your soul over. I don't care how important you think they are in your life. Instead, you ought to examine your relationship and say, I'm going to surround myself with people who I know are going to help me pursue a holy God. And you be that kind of friend to them. Look at 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Paul giving Timothy this instruction about his relationships within the body. And he says, do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, with all purity. With all purity. You know who this admonition is for? It wasn't just for Timothy. And tonight, it's not just for our young men. I believe this admonition stands for all of us that are in the body of Christ, and here's why. Yes, as a young man, when I think about my relationship with older men, guess what? I need to respect them. I need to learn from their wisdom and their experience. When I look at younger men, I need to look at them as brothers, as a great support system to encourage me and me to encourage them in our walk together. Older women, I need to look at them as mothers who care for us in the faith, and younger women as sisters. But you know why this also applies to our young women? You need to present yourself as one who's desiring to be a sister and nothing more. So that our young men can pursue that relationship on a spiritual level with you as a sister in Christ. But young men, no matter what a young lady does, no matter where the, the manner or, or way a young lady dresses, that does not prevent you from upholding your responsibility to God of keeping your heart pure. But young ladies, let's help our brothers out. <laughs> let's encourage them to be godly men. Because these young godly men one day will be strong, godly husbands in the kingdom who will be devoted to their wives and to their children and to their congregations, and we'll see the kingdom of God flourish. You guys we studied with this week, do y'all remember getting a little note card? Oh no, right? Uh-oh. We studied with all the young ladies one afternoon over at David and Rhonda's house, and we gave them a note card and asked them a couple of questions. Then we sent those note cards, different note cards home with the boys and asked them to answer the same questions. And I want to show you what the survey says. <laughs> and the question was this, is what do you think the opposite sex is looking for in a future spouse? I want to share with you some of the answers. 
I think a Christian man wants a good, modest, pure Christian woman who has self-worth enough not to buy into radical feminist thinking. <laughs> wow. Um, I think he wants a woman who knows how to make a house a home and knows how to raise kids on the Bible. I think he wants her to be his advisor and accountability and helps him become closer to God. It's pretty good. Here's another one. This is what he thinks she is looking for. One of our young men wrote, Someone who is responsible and leads. Someone who serves God with his whole heart in whatever capacity he can. Someone who prays every day. Someone who is honest, humble, hardworking. And someone who has a good sense of humor. Hey, good sense of humor. Laughter is a, a very good medicine. Here's another one. What he thinks she's looking for. <laughs> hey, y'all read that fast. <laughs> Over six feet tall. Six-figure salary. Responsible. Fast reflexes. Optional. <laughs> Funny, honest, good with kids, biblical knowledge, a good reputation. I want to share with you the guy's perspective of what they think. He is looking for in a wife. He is looking for a godly woman who reads the Bible daily and prays, who's great with kids, who can endure the Texas heat. <laughs> it must be a West Texas boy. And that can cook. Good values, not annoying. <laughs> Decent hygiene. Cooks, energetic, sociable. Trustworthy, has a love for nature. Modest, creative, music lover, preferably more social than me. A godly woman that I'm friends with. Someone who loves God and is grounded in what they believe. I'm looking for a wife that is submissive, well-versed, loving, cares for the um, kingdom. I got it, kingdom. Loves children and respects her father. In my future wife, I'm looking for someone that loves God more than myself. Someone to make me better by influencing me in a way that shows a love for Jesus. Someone who will undoubtedly raise our children as servants to God. You know what this reveals to me about our young men? They know the right answers. They know what to write on a note card, don't they? Reflexes are optional. <laughs> but they know, right? You know why they know that? Because at some point, either their parents or, or somebody has had a godly influence on them and instructed them, these are the things you need to seek. And they're willing to write those things down. But young men, how many of you are really pursuing that? Just because you write it on the note card doesn't mean that's what you're pursuing in your heart. What we need is your heart pursuing the very thing that you know to be right and true. All right, girls. What do girls want? Guys, take notes. She's looking for someone who's strong in the faith, someone who is honest, attractive, 
Someone who's always seeking God and His wisdom. Someone who respects me and my boundaries. Someone who's kind and loves his family. Someone who understands the importance of marriage and someone who helps me be more Christian. She's looking for someone who prioritizes God even over me. Who wants to always bring up God in Scripture. Someone who can give me godly insight even if it goes against my or their opinion. And a good singer. And we need those. Number one, a good family, hard worker, knowledgeable about the Bible, respectful, kind, growing spiritually, funny, family-oriented, listens well, good to talk to, likes leading songs, boys, lead songs, accountability, loves God, reads the Bible regularly, and I love this one, a one-woman man. Somebody's looking for an elder. (laughs) That's good, young ladies, that's what you need to look for. A man who understands his role as the head of a godly family. Someone who seeks to edify himself and me and our children. An accountability partner. One who values communication and friendship focused on uh, you alone for a relationship. An evident pursuit of Christ. Knowledgeable of scripture. Kingdom relationship. Seeking responsibilities and roles. Respectful, kind, empathetic, self-aware. That's a struggle for a teenage boy. Accountable. The last one. A guy who has completely and wholeheartedly surrendered and committed his life to Jesus and follows him as his Lord and Savior. That he loves God more than me and loves him with all his heart, soul, and mind. A gentleman, kind heart, heart of a servant, patient, a provider, a peacemaker, loyal, level-headed, humble, approachable, respectful, a protector, father-like qualities, high, high standards. Young ladies, you know the right answer to put on a note card, but how many of you are really honestly pursuing that kind of young man? If you're not... We need your heart and your mind to align with the knowledge that you have because you know the right answers. Now, it's my hope and prayer that all of you young people are pursuing those very things because if you'll pursue those things, guess what you're going to find? You're going to find them. And tonight, I want you to understand it's not about finding the right person. It's about you being the right person because when you're the right kind of person, guess who's going to be in your life? You're going to attract people who are, guess what, similar in mindset and goals and vision and purpose and meaning. And you're going to be able to share a lot of things in the kingdom of God together. There's not one single person that's out here walking the earth who you just hopefully come across one day and that's your one true love. Because what we want to see are many, many young men living up to this standard and many, many young ladies living up to this standard who are able to find a partner in one another who will help each other get to heaven. That's a pursuit of holiness. Now, parents, you better be doing everything in your power to promote these kind of relationships. And you better be instructing your children to pursue service and not self, to pursue contentment and not covetousness, 
to pursue purity and not popularity, and to pursue Christ and not the crowd. Because sometimes our children pursue the things that they deem that are important to us. And if you're more concerned that your child be popular and be seen with the right type of people, don't be shocked when they find that person and that person leads them away from God. Do your part. And finally, tonight I want to encourage all of us, make a covenant. Make an agreement with yourself and with that holy God. Job did that, Job 31. Notice what he says about his covenant. He said, I have made a covenant with my eyes. Why then should I look upon a young woman? For what is the allotment of God from above and the inheritance of the Almighty from on high? Is it not destruction for the wicked and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does he not see my ways and count all my steps? God knows, God sees, everything's revealed to him and it, it behooves us as his creation. Guess what? to make a covenant agreement with ourselves that I'm not going to put evil things in front of my eyes. Make a covenant with a friend to hold them accountable to this standard and encourage them to get out of whatever sin they're in so that they might have that relationship with a perfect and holy God and do whatever you have to do to keep that covenant because God is faithful to keep His. And guess what He's promised? He's promised forgiveness He's promised healing. He's promised freedom from sin. And He's promised eternity to you. Make a covenant agreement with Him so that you might receive that at the end of this life. And tonight I'm going to ask you, are you ready to make that covenant? You know, in the Old Testament, 2 Kings 23, King Josiah, who in chapter 22 began reigning at the age of eight in the 18th year of his reign, they find a book of the law. This young man is 26 years old. And Shaphan, that scribe, reads that book of the law to King Josiah. And Josiah rents his clothing. And he says, we have to repent. And he gathers all of the people together and causes that word of that law to be read in their hearing. And notice what he does in response to hearing that word read with all of God's people present. Verse 3, Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, all his soul, to perform the words of his covenant that were written in this book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. Tonight, if you'll make a covenant, you'll make an agreement that you're going to protect your heart, you're going to guard your eyes, you're going to do everything you can to pursue a holy God, guess what? We'll make a covenant with you. We'll stand beside you in that agreement and we'll hold each other accountable because at the end of this life, we don't want anyone to miss the reward. And tonight there's forgiveness. Tonight there's a holy God who is perfect who's calling out saying, pursue me the way I have pursued you and I'll forgive you. I'll give you a new life. I'll give you another chance. I want you with me so much that my son died to make that evident to you. Don't reject that offer tonight. Make a covenant. Keep yourself pure and unspotted from this world. And brethren, let's be anxious and ready to forgive. To restore and to receive. Break my heart, dear Lord. Tear the barriers down. 
Show me in convicting tears the glory of your crown. Tonight, through your tears and your brokenness, see the glorious crown of Christ. Come to Him. Be restored. Be forgiven. And make a covenant. So that you can receive the promises of God's.